which God has written and spoken. Psalm 75. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it drown, down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning to sing praises to you, to read your psalms, the prayers of David and those that came before us, Lord, we give you the glory and honor that you deserve. Lord, we look at the beauty and the majesty of everything around us, and we give thanks and praise to you for that. In spite of all that, Lord, we, sinful man, darken the brightness of your glory. Yet you love us and you've forgiven us for that. You've given us your son, Jesus Christ, as the sacrifice, the atonement for our sins. Lord, that we may stand before you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we are thankful for that and we're humbled by your forgiveness, by your patience, by your perseverance with us. So we ask, Lord, upon blessing, or blessing upon this morning as we worship you, as we fellowship together in love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We are now on catechism number 49. We only have uh, to number 52. We're coming to the end, closing in on the end of these for the past two years. And today's question is, where is Christ now? And the long answer is, and let's read this together. Christ rose bodily from the grave on the third day after his death and is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling his kingdom and interceding for us until he returns to judge and renew the whole world. And the short answer is, let's read together. Christ rose bodily from the grave on the third day after his death and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And the key verse for today is Ephesians 1, 20 to 21. And I will read this uh, verse, two verses. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are an amazing Savior. God, do think you did something for us that we couldn't attain on our own. God, and we, we are confident in that. God, we can go through this life because of what you've done. Um, we can seek out your holiness in ourselves. God, I pray that you lead us um, to obedience. God, thank you. Um, and you are great. Amen. Well, one of the opportunities we have is uh, we have uh, special speakers that have come in that we have set up for you uh, to hear. And uh, uh, this morning we have the privilege of hearing from Michael Landrum. And he is the associate pastor with Aragon Markwell. And uh, he is coming to fill the pulpit today. So, Michael, we come and we just invite you to come and hear from. Uh, we'd love to hear from your word, uh, from God's word. And uh, as God gives you uh, the word to speak to us today. So, Thank you for coming, Michael. I just want this to bless you. It's not a, we know that sermons are not performances, right? They're stewardship. That's what Paul said was that just think of himself and all ministers just as stewards of the mysteries of God. That's it. Um, I want to say, uh, I just want to read a passage um, from Hebrews 13. It's really familiar. You guys are familiar with it. Um, but in in light of the fact that you're looking for a pastor at the moment, um, I was really encouraged to hear uh, the gentleman earlier, Mr. Dennis, it wasn't Dennis, it was a Paul, talking about the seriousness with which they're taking the pastoral search. And then he exhorted everybody to join in with that and to participate in that. And so let me just remind you of this passage in Hebrews 13. Um, Verse 17 says this, have confidence in your leaders. Have confidence in your leaders. And submit to their authority. Because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. 
Who's this talking to? Is this talking to the leaders or is this talking to a church? This is talking to a church. Do this, church, so that their work will be a joy and not a burden. For that would be of no benefit to you. They asked me to come and preach a message on the catechism, catechism question, and I will. I just wanted to just mention a little sermonette, a little warm-up, you know. Um, no, but in all seriousness, congregations need to remember that they have a responsibility in the church along with the leaders of the church. Congregants are not passive. This is a command to congregants in the church to, number one, have confidence in their leaders, number two, submit to their leaders, number three, uh, to, to, to persist in this type of attitude or these actions of submission and confidence so that the leader's job can be a joy and not a burden. I just would really encourage you to keep these things in mind when you're in this transition period of selecting your next pastor. Wouldn't it be a little easier and nice for you to have confidence and submit the way the Word of God tells you to if you pick somebody from the get-go that you can have confidence in because of this vetting process that your elders are taking you through? So it's a huge blessing to have elders that are not just taking applications and trying to draw a name out of a hat in the next seven days. It's a huge blessing that they're doing the screening process. And so I, you know, I just would like to, again, encourage and remind you of the privilege that that is and the opportunity that you have, as well as the responsibility that you have to participate in that. So um, I'm praying with you guys for the next pastor that, that would, that would, you know, take over this church. Um, okay, now to the catechism question. So, um, I feel off balance. I like, I usually do have a PowerPoint and then we can look at things together. But if you take notes, um, I'll try to repeat the passages that I refer to over and over so you can write them down since you don't have like a visual to look at. But if you would, open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, and um, we will start with if you don't mind, um, you know, I want things to be as seamless as possible. I'm not trying to shake anything up, you know, but at our church, we usually stand and read the word just like we did earlier with the psalm. So could we stand together and read Ephesians 1? Okay. Uh, we're going to just start from, we're not going to read a whole lot, just a few verses here. So in Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 18. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian church. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, 
and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is God's word. You can be seated. So the question is, where is Christ now? Where is he? The answer is, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So, I tend to be curious sometimes, and the next question could be, where's that? The answer to that is, up in heaven. Luke chapter 20, verse 51 says this, this is after Jesus uh, was crucified and then rose from the dead. Uh oh, Luke 24, 51, sorry, not 2051. Luke 24, 51, it says, While Jesus was blessing them, that would be his disciples, he left them and was taken up into heaven. So there you go. If my job was to answer the question, mission accomplished. So whatever happens from here on out doesn't count because I did what I was asked to do. And so let's just note that. But you could ask other weird questions, right? You could ask, uh, has he ever moved? You know, is it that Jesus ascended to heaven, found the chair he was supposed to sit in, and then bent at the knees and his tush touched the cushion, and he's never moved ever since then? Well, here's one problematic verse, if that's what you're thinking. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, he's introduced as the one who walks among the golden lampstands. Is he seated or is he walking? <laughs> Of course, these are kind of silly questions, and what I'm getting at is that this answer of where Jesus is at the right hand of the Father has less to do with location and much more to do with position. And this isn't unique. When we talk about other geographical shifts in the New Testament about Jesus, it's never just a Where's Waldo Bible edition. Where's Jesus? That's not what it is. When Jesus came to earth, it wasn't like, oh, I was wondering where he was. Now he's in, on earth. No, that's the incarnation. That's, one of, that's, that's a cardinal doctrine. So it's not just that he was one place and now he's here. When we talk about Jesus coming again, there's a whole lot wrapped up in that too. It's not merely that he's just coming to earth. It's that the God-man is returning to judge the living and the dead. And in the same way, when we talk about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father, it's not just that he's, it's not just a location thing, it's a position thing. It's a positioning. The right hand of the Father tells us, first of all, where Jesus is. So don't mishear me. Don't, it's a, there is a real man, Jesus, who's really seated in a real place, heaven. He's really located there. So it's not like this is metaphor. Or That's not the case. It's real. So it's first of all mentioning the location, but it's most of all describing who he is. 
If we look at our passage in Ephesians 1, just realized I took my phone out so I could see what time I started, so I could kind of, you know, maintain, and I, I don't, I didn't look, so we're going to start from now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so in verse 20, it says that he was raised from the dead and seated, God seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And in verse 21, it gives us a list of things that Jesus is superior to. Rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked. And, you know, you read lists like this, and it's easy to just sort of jam it all together and just say, okay, Jesus is the big boss. Got it. Move on. And 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 you wouldn't be wrong. But let's think about this for a second. Is is this suggesting that Jesus is higher than Joe Biden? I just mentioned a president from the pulpit, I know. Sorry, we're not gonna go to politics. Alright. It doesn't mean that he's higher than uh than any political figure. Absolutely, well sure. But I don't think that's what Paul actually has in mind when he mentions it. Ephesians is one of the most, I would say, aside from the book of Revelation, probably the most spiritual book. And that's not to say that it's better than another book of the Bible. I mean, it's all God's word. But what I mean is specifically, when I say uh, specifically most spiritual book, is that for its shortness, it's only six chapters. You can read it in, well, you know, anybody could read it within a half hour, you know, 15 minutes. It's not a, it's, it's a quick read. But for its shortness, it's packed with talk about what's happening in heavenly places, in the, in the other, in the spiritual realm. And so just to sort of make that point, I'll walk through the book real quick with a couple of examples. So in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul's talking about, believers and what they used to be like before they were believers and he says as for you you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler recognize the word ruler from our passage in verse 20 and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient there's paul pointing beyond what we see into what you can't see and just a couple of verses later, in chapter 2, verse 6, he, said, six, he says, And God raised us up, now talking about the, the regeneration experience, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Talking again about what you can't see, but is certainly a reality. Chapter 3, verse 10, he says, His intent, now this is God's intent in bringing Jews and Gentiles together under one roof, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to who? To everybody, to all of our peers in an evangelistic sense? No, it doesn't mean that's not true, but that's not his point in chapter 3. In chapter 3, he says, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly realm. Paul keeps pointing, pointing there, pointing to what's happening in the supernatural. In chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, we see it again. This is talking about, well, I'll just read it. It says, it's talking about Jesus. What is, 
he, Jesus, ascended, mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. This is just talking about the whole uh, uh, spiritual uh, realm and how Jesus has filled all, filled all in all. And then just a couple more in chapter 5, verse 32. Even when he's talking about, you know, we go here in marriage conferences to talk about how husbands are supposed to treat their wives and vice versa. But in the, right toward the end of that, in verse 32, he says, well, sorry, I'm going to start in verse 31. He says, for this reason, and he's quoting the Old Testament here, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But in verse 32, out of nowhere, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. He's still talking about some mystical type of thing happening in the spiritual realm. And then, of course, the most famous thing from Ephesians, if you've read your Bible at all or just heard from the Bible, if you hear Ephesians, you might think of chapter 6 and the armor of God, which is where we get the famous passage about we not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and authorities. See, when we read the Bible, you have to remember that before you go from something, you, you know, a phrase that you recognize in the passage that you're looking at, and then jump over to another book of the Bible and try to start connecting dots. You have to remember that Paul was a real guy who wrote a real letter to a real church that was intended to be all, all read together. So when we go back to our passage in chapter 1, verse 20, when he mentions these rule, all rule and authority and power and dominion, I can't help but, but read that in the context of the whole letter and say that Paul is consumed with this idea of what's happening spiritually. And so Jesus, yes, he's above Joe Biden, Vladimir Putin, Alexander the Great, and all of them. But more to the point, and what, what Paul's getting at here, is that Jesus is even superior to every, every spiritual authority that there is. Every spiritual authority that there is. That there is. This becomes even more into focus uh, as to why Paul is talking about this, when you remember the origin of the Ephesian church. Paul is the one who planted the church in Ephesus, and you remember what happened there? This is in Acts chapter 19, and there was actually a riot there because there was a, they, there was a, um, a Greek goddess, Artemis, or Diana, Greek or, or, uh, or Roman, but anyways, there was a, there was a temple to, to her, and there was a riot that broke out when, when Paul was preaching Jesus says, Lord, and some shrewd businessmen said, well, wait a minute, we're making idols, you know, and selling these idols that represent our goddess, and it's going to be bad for business. And so uh, there was a huge riot that happened there. But there's another couple of famous things that happened there. And what's interesting is that a lot of times, you know, especially if you grew up in the church like I did, you're familiar with a lot of stories, but then for some reason you just miss details that connect it all together. So you may be familiar with, here, I'm just going to go back and read that. In Acts 19, you can turn there if you want to, but if not, just write it down in Acts 19. This is where you can read all about the origin of the Ephesian church. So it says this in uh, verse 11 to 20. It said, God did, this is while Paul was in Ephesus. Remember, this is the church that Paul is writing to in Ephesians 1. While Paul was in Ephesus, it said that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, 
and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. You may be familiar with that, but did you know that happened in Ephesus? That's where this happened at. In verse 13, it says, Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits in Ephesus, there's these itinerant uh, Jewish exorcists, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. I don't know him, but the one, the one I saw Paul do it, the one who keeps sending handkerchiefs out, that guy, whatever he's, in that guy's name, come out. I command you to come out. Verse 14, seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. It is interesting to see the various different ways that God has worked in order to bring people to himself. And in Ephesus, the way that it worked, a key uh, component to these people converting was the fear they were struck by when somebody tried to invoke Jesus' name the same way they would invoke whatever other false god's name. They said, Jesus, that's not a name to mess with, the way that we throw around these other names. And it says in verse 18, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. What type of things were they doing? Sexual immorality, lying, stealing, uh, being disobedient to their parents. What kind, of, what kind of things would they have confessed in Ephesus? What do you think? Let's read what it says. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and they burned them publicly. Again, another familiar story. This happened in Ephesus. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Now, a drachma is basically a day's wage. So whatever you make for a day, just times that by 50,000. And that's how much these books would probably be worth. You could tell this was a life investment. These would be people like these Jewish sorcerers that were maybe made their living off of this type of magic to those that were enthusiastic hobbyists that were that that just liked delving into black magic for whatever reason. In this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So it's not for nothing that Paul, it seems to me that Paul speaks so often when he's writing to the Ephesians about what's happening in the spiritual world. And when he comes to chapter 1, verse 20, when he wants to exalt Jesus and say who Jesus is above, yes, he's above even Caesar at the time. But what these Ephesians, what may have hit home twice as hard to them, is that he's above every other name that these ex-sorcerers and witches and, and, and exorcists He's above all those names they used to invoke in all their incantations and their magic tricks they did. He's above all of them. 
But here's what's interesting. In case you haven't found anything interesting yet, try this one. Jesus is not just above all evil spirits. We like to think that when we talk about Jesus' superiority, especially in this type of a context, at least speaking for myself, I tend to think of Jesus' supremacy and his power and ability to trump any competitors, any evil spirits, anything that would come against him. He's more powerful than that. And amen. But let's not forget that that doesn't just put him in league and in a similar rank with all the angels and the heavenly hosts on this side. No, he's all the way above them too. In Revelation chapter 1, we get a glimpse of this. Oh, sorry, not chapter 1, Revelation chapter, stand by, 5. Revelation chapter 5. You can write this one down or you can follow along. But here's the vision that Jesus gave to, uh, to John where he's pulling the veil back. That's what Revelation kind of means. And giving him a view of what's really going on. And look at this glorious picture. Then I, John, saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that is God the Father. And, um, hold, so uh, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? Now, Revelation can be an intimidating book because it has a reputation of being uh, highly sort of artistic or symbolic. Um, I, I, I understand that, but it's not like the Revelation is ununderstandable, like that word I just used, which isn't a real word. See? But you understand it, right? Revelation's like that. It's not that you can't comprehend it at all. So... So even if you don't know exactly what the scroll represents, which I think it's, it, it, I think that you can understand it pretty simply, but that's not the point of the message, so I'm not going to dive into that. Just recognize what's happening here, that God the Father is holding something, and an angel looks and says, who's able to grab this thing from God the Father and then open it up? Somebody, this takes some sort of authorization. Verse 3, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. This, again, even if you don't understand all the symbolism or the details of everything happening here, you can you can catch the drama of it by just reading it through. So just... Shut up, Michael, and read through it then. <laughs> Verse 4. What does John do when this happens? He says he wept. And he wept. This deeply affected John that there was nobody anywhere who would venture to approach the throne of God and take something from him and be begin to extract its contents. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. You couldn't find an angel anywhere. You couldn't find a living creature. You couldn't find, what about the ones 
and Ezekiel with all the eyeballs and the and like all the wings. I mean, he couldn't do it. Verse five. Then one of the elders said to me, "Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals." So there is one in all of heaven, earth, under the earth. There's one, only one. Verse 6, then I saw a lamb, a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He did the thing nobody could do, and that, that through John into a, death, a fit of desperation. And when he had taken it, listen, the four living creatures, whoever they are, there's some kind of angelic being, and the 24 elders, whoever they are, but we know they're part of the heavenly host, they fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people, and they sang a new song. They sang, a, if you follow Revelation, they sang a song in Revelation 4 to the Creator. But in Revelation 5, they sing a new song. Who's this guy who gets a song? I thought only God, the Creator, in Revelation 4 got a song. No, there's a new song also. You are worthy to take the scroll, here's the song, and to open its seals. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked, and listen to this. Remember, the point we're making here is that Jesus is not just above all the evil spirits and everyone on that side, but he's also above all the heavenly spirits, no matter what their rank or authority. See what it says in verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. You can do the math and it just, it still wouldn't be sufficient. The point is that it's, it's, it's infinity and beyond. <laughs> you get the reference, right? Anyway, they, that's right. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb. Tens and tens and tens of thousands, all in one voice, in unison, and we'll join them one day, hallelujah, saying, He's the worthy one. He's worthy who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor, and glory, and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne, and there can't be an and to the one who sits on the throne. Yes, there can. There's the lamb, the one who sits on the throne, and to the lamb, be praised and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Can you think of anyone else out there, maybe in the universe, in the spiritual world somewhere, who wasn't included in that, that maybe is a little higher than Jesus? There's no way. 
There's no way. The point Paul's making in Ephesians 1 is that Jesus is superior to all these wicked forces, but also all these righteous forces. You can read the, I was reading Job recently, and there's a couple times in there where it says that even the heavens are not holy before God dies. And it's just getting at the fact that Jesus is, or that, that God the Father is so extremely and extraordinary set apart from his creation. Nevertheless, Jesus is there. He's superior. He's, he's above all spiritual forces. But it says in verse 20, so back to Ephesians chapter 1, it says, It says that he was seated at the right hand of the Father. The second half of verse 20. So it goes, he exerted when he raised, the power that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realm. The wording there is not by accident. Jesus was seated. What's the significance of that? Authority was given to Jesus. It's kind of a weird thought to think of if you believe, as you must, to be in the Christian faith, that Jesus is the preexistent God. He is eternal. We believe in the God three in one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, Jesus was given authority. Matthew 28, 18, what does it say? When he commissions everybody to, or commissions the apostles to go and, and make disciples of all nations, he starts that with all authority on heaven and on earth have been given to me. In verse 22 of Ephesians 1, it says that God placed all things under his feet. God raised Jesus. God seated him or gave him honor and authority over all things, God placed everything under his feet. And as it goes on, it says that God has made him the head of everything. Hebrews 10.13, just one last passage on this point of the fact that Jesus isn't working independently, but that God is the one who's doing these things. It says in Hebrews 10, 13, that also his enemies will be made his footstool. It says, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. 
I haven't made a point yet on this. I'm just, we need to recognize that God is the one. There's an order to this and that God has granted authority to Jesus and appointed him to something. It wasn't that Jesus just did this all independently. So, let me, let me do this this way. In Hebrews chapter 1, because this, this is something that I just came across, happened to come across, and uh, I think it helps lead up to the point. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says this, speaking of Jesus. It says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, there we're talking about the Son, that's Jesus. Then he describes the Son. Who's the Son? The Son is whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The question becomes, how do you inherit what you created? It said that Jesus, it said the Son, I'll read it one last time, who he appointed heir, that's one who inherits, as if you didn't have it before. But the Son is also the one through whom also he made the universe. Here's the answer. Christ's humanity makes him the inheritor. Jesus the Christ you know this 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 will sound weird Jesus the Christ was not always the Christ now let me explain there was a time when he came and he fulfilled those promises of a of the Messiah the promised one to come the one that was to be anointed Jesus always existed of course he's God the son But Paul, I'm going to read a couple of passages in Acts where we see that the, even the apostles, as they were teaching and preaching the gospel, they recognized Jesus' specific work in this time in history, that Jesus was appointed to something. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 32, as Peter's preaching, he comes to the end of his sermon, and how does he refer to Jesus? Now, Jesus, of course, as I said, was preexistent for all time. But in his incarnate, which just means God made flesh, in his incarnate ministry, he took on, he added to his divinity, humanity, and he took on this new role. It says, therefore, let, this is Peter preaching to a whole lot of Jews and maybe some other Gentiles, but mostly all Jews, saying, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, not created, that's not what I'm saying, but he, what I'm saying is he appointed Jesus to something. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. 
says it again in Acts chapter 10. Verse 32. Uh, and by 32, I mean 42. He commanded us, Peter and his associates, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one, Jesus, is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. See, Jesus is appointed to this ministry of judging the living and the dead one day. And then, um, Acts 17, when Paul's preaching to uh, Athens, he tells them the same thing. In verse 31, I'll start in verse 30, I suppose. It says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, this is kind of, you know, preaching is, is uh, they say teaching is not always preaching, but preaching is always teaching. So this is the teaching time to understand that there's that there's a specific role that Jesus came into in the incarnation. That that God the Father made him Lord in Christ, as Peter said. That He has appointed him to be the judge. That He's been handed authority now. All connected to his incarnate, his incarnate ministry. Now, this is, this is interesting. And when you think about it, it's amazing. But Paul's point in Ephesians 1 is that this is powerful. It's one thing to recognize that God has all authority and that God is a judge and that God is all-powerful. It's another thing to think that there's a man who's all those things. The God-man, to be sure, I keep reiterating that because I'm a foreigner here. You guys, you know, I know. I've, so I can't trip up and make it sound like I'm, I'm not preaching heresy. The God-man, of course, but a man nonetheless. Back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. See, the question that we ask as the catechism question is, where is Christ now? And the answer to that is he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and we understand that that's not just talking about location, although it is that first and foremost. Most importantly, it's position. But now we have to, you know, if, if, if there's two ways I could have went with this. I could have either just stuck to the catechism question and answered that he has all authority, which is what I'm doing now, as well as he's our intercessor and go to Hebrews chapter 10, which was in the longer answer of the of the catechism question, and I'd encourage you to read Hebrews 10, 13, or uh, in your, the, I think it's 10, 13, um, and look into that as well. Or, so I could have I could have taught on both of those, but I know myself enough, I preach enough to know that I can turn any 10-minute sermon into a 10-hour sermon, so I have to always niche down, and I picked just one, and I decided we would answer it with, uh, we'd look at just him having all authority and being seated at the right hand of the Father, and in doing that, I want to take this passage that's a supporting verse, the 
Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, and now look at the flow of thought of it, because Paul was really communicating something here. So now we've looked at the fact that we know where Jesus is. We've looked at the fact that what that means, which is that he has all authority. But now let's look at why Paul was even saying that to this Ephesian church. Because again, this was a real letter he wrote to them, and he's communicating real thoughts. So let's 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 check the flow of thought, and I'll land with this point because this is where this is where this really applies. So we started reading at verse 18. So if you're back in Ephesians chapter one, I ask you to look again with me. Paul is encouraged by this church. He's excited about this church, and he said that ever since he heard about their faith and how they're growing in their faith and their love for God's people, he hasn't stopped giving thanks, number one, and then praying for them. And he says what he's praying for. In verse 18, it says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. There's, there's the prayer request. that you. He's praying that you may know, which just a quick note. In your prayer request, do you ever just pray that your brothers and sisters in Christ would increase in their knowledge, knowledge in their head, as well as their embracement of that knowledge. That's what Paul was praying for from prison. I'll have you know. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Okay. Also the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, which is really hard to just, Pass by, but that's not our sermon today. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. It's from it that's the launch point for Paul mentioning that Jesus has all authority by virtue of the fact that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. It's because he's praying. For the Ephesians to understand the power that that it took for that to happen to Jesus. So, yes, understand the fact that Jesus has ascended and that he's seated at the right hand of the Father and that he has all authority. But specifically here, understand the power it takes to accomplish that. And how does it take power? Because, again, this is a man, the God-man, who came to earth and, and, uh, and took on flesh. But when he resurrected and when he ascended, it wasn't spirit only. It was flesh and blood. How much power does it take for me to usurp Joe Biden? A little bit, quite a bit. <laughs> You know, I, I have no secret service. Uh, how much power would it take to usurp whoever other governmental authority and how much power would it take to overcome and overwhelm and usurp any authority in the heavenly realms? It takes a lot of power. As a human, that's what God did. He exalted this God-man and even says, Mind-blowing things, like he's a prototype, and his resurrection is a foreshadowing of ours. Holy moly. That's power, and that's what Paul wants these Ephesian people to understand. Now listen, the last thing. It's not just power, 
the power that it takes to accomplish this feat, to have flesh and blood now sitting at the right hand of the Father, that takes an immense amount of power. But that power that Paul wants them to know about is power that is directed towards the church, toward God's people. When, when, when people tend to think of the power of God, they think of some basically what can be categorized as a magic show. You want to see... You want to see the sun stand still for a day like it did for Joshua. Or you want to see some other kind of miracle. Healings. And whatever else is on your prayer list. Something, you know, you're thinking of Bruce Almighty type power. Where it's really just a human, you know, indulging himself as much as possible. You know, with limitless power. God could display his power however he wanted to. And the way that he displayed his power was by sending Jesus, him assuming a body, becoming human, and then ascending and being seated with all authority. I didn't even read the passage that's going to really lay all this out. Hebrews chapter 2, and I really ask you to go there with me. 1125, I think I've been going for 45 minutes, so I'm going to wrap it up very, very soon. But Hebrews chapter 2 is is really a key passage on this. It says in uh, chapter 2, verse 5, It is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Now we have two entities in this passage that have been introduced so far. You have angels. It says it's not to angels that he subjected the world. And now he's introduced mankind. See, there's two different types of entities there. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. Now wait, so we're so mankind is lower than the angels, but we have everything subjected under our feet. Doesn't seem like everything's what what are you talking about? Let's keep reading. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. To who? To mankind. This is the, the uniqueness of mankind that we are co regents with God as stewards. In verse nine, it or sorry, in the second half of verse eight. It says, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet, at present, the way things are currently, we don't see everything subject to mankind. But, we do see this. We do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. You see what's happening in him becoming human? 
So Jesus is not ashamed to call them mankind's brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I'll sing your praises. These are quotations from the Old Testament. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus, again, the pre-existent God, eternal God, there was a there was a time in history when he entered in in a unique way by becoming humanity, and in doing so, accomplished things in the heavenly realms, like conquering the devil, he, he, and, and set free, and, and, and accomplished things in the spiritual realms, like conquering the devil, and accomplished things in the physical realm, like setting us, believers, free from the power of death forever, because he overcame it, and then ascended higher than any spiritual authority. He did. So that's the way that God's power that, he, that Paul's talking about in Ephesians has worked on our behalf. See, Paul understood this at a very deep level to the point that it propelled him into ministry, into constant preaching everywhere that he went. And that's why he said, I'm going to read two last verses and wrap this up. In Romans chapter 1, I don't need to read it, but I'll read it anyway. In Romans chapter 1, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God. Keep going. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. See how it's directed toward those who would believe? The whole purpose of God, of course, it's to glorify himself, but what he's accomplishing by sending Jesus and everything that, that required his power was to redeem a group of people. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And so, I'll end with this passage, just a couple chapters after Ephesians chapter 1. See, it's broken into two halves. Chapter 1 through 3 is a lot of talking about what God has done for us. Chapters 4 through 6 is a lot of commands about what we're expected to do in light of that. And he ends chapter 3, right, in the heart of the whole letter. There's another really famous passage, but I think maybe it'll hit a little differently in light of everything we talked about. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably, immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. To him, to him, who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And how much could he do? Well, just consider the power working within us. 
He resurrected Jesus or resurrected you spiritually and resurrected you physically. He, Jesus ascended, and we're going to be ruling and reigning with him one day. All the power it took to make the God-man uh, ascend the way that he did is the same type of power. He did that on our behalf uh, and the same type of power that will be working in us. So to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word and the fact that it's clear. It's not It's not that we can't comprehend it, Lord. It's not even that unbelievers just can't make any sense of it, but they just don't believe it. Lord, I thank you for the fact that there's a group of believers here who have heard your word, not only comprehended it, but have apprehended it and been apprehended by it. And Father, I would just pray that vain words would fall away and that, Lord, whatever the Spirit was speaking to each person in here, God, that that seed would bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. And I pray, God, that we would walk out of here with an exalted view of Christ as the superior authority over every spiritual authority on our behalf. Thank you, Lord. We look forward to seeing you one day. May you come back soon.